Good morning, Miss Yo. Today's reading is from John chapter 14, verses 5 through 20. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will even do greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also shall live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Well, welcome, everybody. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, it is very good to have you. And if you are new, there is an easy way to get connected with us in light of COVID and in light of like not having the normal mechanisms of getting connected. You can go to our website, missioslc.com slash connect. So if you'd like to talk to a pastor, join a house church, find out what's going on in the community, that is the easiest way to do that right now. Uh, and then a few things just to name and put on your radar. Number one, today is the 50th anniversary of the March on Selma, um, which we just finished Black History Month, and Missio is this year, but has for the last decade had a long-term commitment to having a conversation on the gospel, justice, and race. And so just in light of today being the 50th anniversary of such a magnificent moment, in not just American history, but in church history, that's that what that moment is. It is a moment in church history where the ethics of Jesus and the ethics of the people of Jesus are on full display. Last week, actually, Heather talked about how what we see in Jesus is what we learn about God is what we see in Jesus on the cross, that God empties himself to become like us, to non-coercively move and change the world. And in Selma, you see an example of people so beautifully embodying the ethic of Jesus to change the world. And we live 
in such deep debt and gratitude to that moment. So we celebrate and honor that moment today. And then finally, number three, we are beginning a thing for this series called Ask Anything. And we've never done this before as like a part of a sermon series, but during this series that we're in right now called God Images, we're asking large questions about God. And we're wrestling with huge ideas about the person of God. Today we're going to talk about God as three, Trinity, which brings up so many big questions and and leads us to so many kind of like strange and possible places of inquiry. And so what we want to do is take a whole Sunday sermon to just focus on the questions that emerge from this series. And so if you are listening to these sermons over the next couple of weeks or already, or you come to the Bible class on March 14th, and different questions begin to emerge to you about God, about Jesus, about what it looks like to be the people of God, about how we read the Bible in light of who Jesus is, about how we hold difficult or confusing or strange ideas in light of who Jesus is, would you just send an email to ask at missiodayslc.com, and then we'll try to answer those questions. We'll try to give space to all the things that we didn't think about as we were planning this sermon series, and you could shape what happens on a Sunday. So that's that. Those are the three things to put on your radar. Cool. All right. Well, as I just said, we are in a series called God Images, Exploring Our Mental Pictures of God. And we began this series by saying that there is maybe nothing more important about us, maybe nothing more defining about us than our mental images of God. If your image of God is one of deep judgment or fear, that matters because it will then shape a faith of judgment and fear. If I'm always worried that God is keeping a list or keeping track of wrongdoings or measuring me against some kind of objective standard, and that's my primary mental picture of God, well, then it will shape in turn a faith that reflects that kind of image. I will have a faith that's all about checking boxes, that's about doing what is right, that is measuring myself and probably others to a weird objective standard. If I have a mental picture of God as someone that is distant, removed from everyday life, well, then I will have a faith that looks probably pretty abstract and possibly riddled with just empty cliches. Things that try to make my faith feel more substantive and meaningful because at the end of the day, my actual image of God is someone who's uninvolved and uninterested. Or if I have a picture of God as weak, and passive, and insignificant, well then again, my faith will reflect that. I will have a faith that looks empty. And this isn't just a theological idea. There is actual social science to show that there is a correlation between our mental pictures of God and the kinds of faith that we live. The University of Michigan did a study that for folks who have more violent depictions of God as their mental image, it leads to more violent actions in their faith. Right? If I believe that God is a violent character or an angry character or a judgmental character or even an abusive character or a lax character, well, then it naturally begins to flesh its way into my faith system. Then I can begin to justify or make sense of or break arguments for a God and a faith that is those things, that is either violent or judgmental or distant. 
So the image that we have of God, this mental picture of God, is so important to that faith that we live, the ethics that come out of our faith, the way that we worship, the way that we see one another, the way that we see ourselves. And what we've said so far, and this is the most important idea of the whole series, so if this is all you hear even again today, it will have been worth it. This is what we've said so far, that Jesus is the ultimate image of God. Jesus is the ultimate image of God. We got this from Hebrews chapter 1 where the writer of Hebrews says that in days past, God had spoken by prophets and words of wisdom, but now God has finally spoken by his son, Jesus. And the apostle Paul in Colossians says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And the apostle John in John chapter 1 says that no one has ever seen God, but Jesus, who is God, has made him known. The idea being that if we want to know who God is, if we want a clear picture of God, if we want to know what God is like, what God thinks, how God operates in the world, then we look to Jesus. And every other image, every other idea, every other concept, every other theology, every other piece of our traditions even, really good and beautiful pieces sometimes, have to be submitted to that image of Jesus. Sometimes we actually like to work the other way around. We like to start with our own conceptions of God and then reverse engineer back to Jesus to say that Jesus is like the God that we imagine. But Jesus is the ultimate image of God, so we always have to work from Jesus out and compare and contrast all of our pictures of God to Jesus. If we enter into the, what we've said is like the mental gallery of God in our head, and Jesus isn't the first and primary image, then we have a problem. Our picture of God is not clear. It's not complete. So Jesus is the ultimate and perfect and supreme image of God. And what do we see when we look at Jesus? Well, last week we saw a God who empties himself who comes in the form of a servant, not because that's a denial of his godhood, but because that's how God is, that God always moves in sacrificial love to make room for his people. And today we're continuing to see what Jesus reveals, and here's what we'll see today. That Jesus reveals to us that the whole of God is working so that the whole of you may know that you are wholly loved. Jesus reveals that the whole of God, pay attention to that phrase, the whole of God is working that the whole of you, every part of you, all that you are, may know that you are wholly loved. The text that Sandy Timbo read from is in John chapter 14. And the context of that text is the same conversation that we are having. The disciples are asking Jesus, who are you? And can you show us who God is? And Jesus responds to the disciples in John 14, verse 6, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, then you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
So Jesus confirms what it is that we have been saying. It's another moment where Jesus is like, hey, if you want to know who God is, look to me. I am the image. I am the revelation of God. Every other image is not as clear, is not as perfectly capturing who God is. I reveal God. But then there's something in this that is also revealing. Not just that Jesus reveals God. We also see that Jesus reveals that he has a relationship with God as Father. Now, I know this is a bit of a familiar concept. We think of God as Father. We think of God in the the, the fatherly Abba, Dad terms because of Jesus' prayer. But let's just stay here for a second because it's actually kind of a marvelous reveal that Jesus reveals the God that we know in Jesus is a personal God, a relational God. New Testament scholar Douglas Campbell says it this way, the God revealed through Jesus overflows with personhood. God the Father sent the Son, and God the Spirit has drawn us through the Son back to the Father. In Jesus, we see that God is personal, that God is relational. In fact, in Jesus, we actually see that God is a community of relationships, like a family. Meaning that God's primary identity or orientation or disposition is relational, familial. The identity and the nature of God revealed in Jesus is relational and personal like a family, or for some of us, we don't have the greatest family, so that's not a helpful metaphor. So maybe a better metaphor would be like friends. Jesus reveals that at the very center of our faith, the center of the universe, that at the bottom of everything, if you peel back all the layers of religion and all the layers of morals and all the layers of tradition that we have loaded onto God, if you were to pull all of it back, get to the very grain of the universe, you would find of relationship. That God is not some abstract force, some impersonal entity or vindictive judge, but is instead a community of love. How massive is that? What is your image of God? Is it of a community of relationships and love? If it is not that, then it is not the God revealed in Jesus. This is a God whose primary orientation is familial. But here's the thing, it keeps getting even bigger than that because it's not simply that God is familial towards God's self. God sees us as family. Jesus says in this very passage that no one comes to the Father except through me and then goes on into verse 18 and says, and I will not leave you as orphans. Jesus has a familial image. And then the Apostle Paul goes on even further to say that we all bear the image of God's Son so that he is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. Paul's talking about us. Brothers and sisters becomes the Apostle Paul's favorite language for talking about Christians, for talking about the church. And it's not simply because we are brothers and sisters of one another, but because In the biblical story, we are brothers and sisters of Jesus. 
writer of Hebrews says the same thing in Hebrews 2.11. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And so what Jesus reveals about God is that God is a family of love who sees and acts towards us as family. Or is a community of friendship and sees and acts towards us out of friendship. This is a beautiful and massive idea. The problem, maybe one problem among, among many, is that this is not how we primarily orient ourselves in the world. It's not our primary way of seeing God or seeing ourselves. When we look at the images of God, family might be a part of that. We are pretty accustomed to talking about God as Father, but that can often be loaded with so much baggage or hurt or woundedness or just kind of like abstract and confusion. So Father might be in there, but it's often kind of like loaded behind other problematic images. And when we look at ourselves even, we often don't think of ourselves as family. Our own self-image and our gallery of self is full of other kinds of narratives and other kinds of pictures, hidden behind other, well, less hopeful or helpful images. In fact, this is how things go wrong in the biblical story to begin with. Most of you probably remember how the Bible starts. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates a beautiful world. And in Genesis 3, you have this weird figure show up in the narrative, the tester. And what does the tester do but so lies about self and God? And these lies begin to operate as a mask or like a false image about who God is and about who God's people are. And they, those lies become like painted over our gallery of God and our gallery of of self. And then we, just as humans, we spend a lifetime curating and wrestling with those lies. Now, the tricky thing about that is that when I say lies, I think probably the first thing that comes to mind is something that is like overtly bad. And lies are bad. I'm not saying that lies are not bad. But what is tricky about the lies that we tell ourselves about self and about God that mar our image of God and our image of self, is that they're not so simple to diagnose. Some of our lies are straight fear, or shame, or contempt. And we know those ones. We wrestle with those ones. But space abhors a vacuum, and so when we don't have a clear image of God or self, we fill it with lots of images. And some of those images, I think, are more about comfort or security or a sense of self. They're a way to navigate the difficulties of the world. They're a way to make sense of the world around us. And they do not stink as quickly as bad because they protect us. They comfort us. They fit our own understanding. When I was a kid, um, I think most of you in here know this, but when I was a kid, my dad died. And so I grew up for a long time without a dad. And, well, kids have active imaginations. And again, space abhors a vacuum. And so without a dad, you believe me, I constructed an imagination for what a dad was like. 
Dr. Seaver from Growing Pains. Very good image of what I thought a dad was like. TV shows, movies, books, Sirius Black, somehow he got loaded in there. I had this very confusing conception of what a dad was like. Kind of rugged, also a stable psychologist. <laughs> I was eight. Give me a break. <laughs> Is that right? Somewhere around there. But you be I began to construct like an imagination for what a dad was like, and I filled it with things that were true about my dad. I grew up hearing stories about my dad, seeing pictures of who my dad was, and those stories then kind of shaped all these like TV images and these like movie images of a dad and book images of a dad. And the older I got, the more of an image of what a father looked like I had. This gallery of dads, so to say, in my head. And there was these different pictures in there. And they constructed how I understood a dad to be. But then in middle school, my mom remarried. And all of a sudden, my very strange gallery of dad came face to face with a real dad. And that caused serious conflict. It's not that he was a bad dad. In fact, I'll tell in a second that he was a very good dad. And it's not that all of these images that I had constructed were bad. Some were beautiful. Some were rooted in a real person, my actual father. But as soon as those images that I had held that constructed my picture of a dad came into conflict with a real dad, they produced tension and conflict. And I think the real reason they produced tension and conflict was less because this person didn't fit my image of a dad and more because those images were actually about me. Because as much as I was trying to fill my vacuum with images of fake dads, what I was really doing was telling a story of my own self-sufficiency, a story that protected me, a story that said, I actually do not need a father. A story that was like, this is my space. And so for that to be changed means that I lose control, I lose dominance, I lose oversight of my space because you're bringing someone else into this space. And so much of my own narrative and personal story that I had built, that I had written, was about protecting that sense of self, that sense of control, that sense of independence, that sense that well, I just matter without a dad. Who needs one? And I think we do the very same thing to God. We have these images of God, stories about God that we tell ourselves and tell the world around us. And they give us a vague sense of who God is. Many of them come from true things. And then many of them are loaded with stories that we've inherited or that we've written ourselves in order to protect ourselves, in order to comfort ourselves, in order to give ourselves a sense of security. And those stories are helpful in so many ways. Because we do spend a lot of life feeling a bit dislocated. And so those stories give us a sense of location, a sense of protection. But what they also do is keep us away from the real thing. My imagination kept me from a real dad, and our stories and imagination of God keep us from a real 
God because they are not real stories of God. They are projections of our own self. And they come into tension with God whenever we get close to encountering the living God, whether that's in the story of Jesus or in the people around us or some other kind of experience. They come into tension. And they come into tension when they do, they, there's a conflict internally within us. Our stories and our images, something has to happen with those things, right? You have the real thing in front of you is trying to get into your life and you're holding on to these things. And so something has to give. Something has to happen. Something has to unravel. And that can feel like death because in so many ways it is. And our impulse as humans is not to easily die. And so we fight and we thrash and we hold on to our images in violent ways. My stepdad entered into what has got to be the strangest possible world a person could enter into, like a 40-year-old single man could come into. I am an aggressively nerdy middle schooler. I'm at the peak of puberty and a theater kid. You cannot imagine high school musical emotions like these. <laughs> and I'm also hurt and wounded and sad and lonely. And so I unleash all of that, all of the worst of me into him. I unleash my attempts at self-sufficiency. I unleash my attempts at control. I unleash my attempts at dominance. I unleash all of my best efforts to hold on to the imagination of my own sufficiency and value. I unleash into him my insecurities that keep me from him because I desperately want to believe that I don't need him. And what did he do? He absorbed it every ounce of it. He took the very worst of me. He gave and he gave and he gave some more. He gave until I had nothing left to give and then he gave some more. The Apostle Paul will describe this in Romans 5.8. He demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died. This is what God does in Jesus. Jesus absorbs all of our hostility, our self-sufficiency, our attempts at control, our need to hold on to violent, hold on violently to our own images and protect our own insecurities. He takes it until there is nothing left. And then he gives some more. And in doing so, he reveals his love. On the cross, it's like Jesus is peeling back all of our false images, all of our false imaginations. You believe that God is this way? Well, throw that violent image at me. Let me take it until it is unmasked. You believe that God is judgmental? Well, bring it to me and I will absorb all of it until there is no judgment left and all you see is love. If you believe that I'm going to shame you, throw that image at me and let me take all of it until there is nothing left except for love. Jesus absorbs all of our false images of self, 
of others, and most importantly of God, and through the cross peels back every one of them, unmasks every one of them, undoes every single one of them so that we can see clearly who we are and who God is. So that we can know that we are children so deeply loved by a family that would give everything to show it. The whole of God. So Jesus reveals that we are deeply loved, but that is not the end of it. We don't just begin to live as though we are loved. We have long habituated a life of false narratives, of false imaginations, rooted in our own sense of self-sufficiency. I don't just overcome my insecurities about needing a father or being loved overnight. I have to learn myself loved. I have to reimagine life as someone who is loved. And Jesus tells us that the work of the Father, the work of God, the whole work of God continues into this learning process. In John 14, verse 17, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The whole of God is working. Spirit of truth is not the most like clear description of what it is that the Spirit does. So the Apostle Paul gives us just another little piece. In Galatians 4, 6, saying this, Because you are God's children, God sent the Spirit of Jesus into our hearts. And what does the Spirit do? Cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit confirms that you are deeply loved. One theologian named Greg Boyd says it this way. This is also why the work of the Son had to be accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit. For we not only need to have the true God revealed to us, we need also to have him revealed in us to restore our capacity to behold the true God. So in Jesus, love is revealed, it's displayed, it is given over and over and over again without end. But then in the Spirit, that love is like pressed into us. It's like folded into our bones and our joints so that we might know beyond just abstract idea or theory that our deepest being, we are loved by a God who has given everything to be with us. The Spirit is at work confirming the thing that Jesus has revealed to us. Witnessing to the truth of who God is in Jesus, to our most inner being. In 2 Corinthians, the, the Apostle Paul says that the Spirit unveils our eyes. He's not talking about our physical eyes, he's talking about like some spiritual eyes of our heart, that he unveils our heart to behold Jesus. It's like the whole of God is working 
together in continuous practice. Sometimes the language that is used in Greek is is a reference to a dance, that the whole of God is working in perfect communion together in order that you and me might know ourselves as wholly loved. God reveals it. Jesus gives it. The Spirit confirms it. So that we might know the whole of God is working so that the whole of you may know that you are wholly loved. Messiah, do you believe that? What if we did? What if we did believe that the whole of God was a community of love that was at work since the beginning of time and through the end of time so that you might know that you are wholly loved? What if we really believe that at the very bottom of us? What if we allow the Spirit's work in us to confirm that we are loved? What might happen to our faith? What, ha- what might happen to our life? I think on one hand, we would just know a faith that looks like freedom. Paul says in Galatians 5 that for freedom Christ has set you free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then he goes on to say, run in love. And love orients us in a different way. It empowers a different kind of life, and it redefines so much of what we think about, like, is faith or is religion. All of a sudden, concepts like holiness, which outside of love feel like moralism or judgment or shame or obeying the law or maybe really good things but that are just kind of distant and religious, they are rewritten and reoriented and redeemed and all of a sudden holiness can't make sense unless it is somehow connected to a God who wholly loves you. And if God is holy, then holiness is love. And so then our own pursuit of holiness is what? It's living into the love that God has for us. That's a fundamental reorientation to the Christian life. And it is one rooted in freedom. So I think if we believed this, we'd find a faith of freedom. I think we'd find something to actually offer our hearts in the midst of difficult moments. And I think that we would offer something to the world around us that actually matters. So, Missy, what if you believed that? As we close up, I just want to leave you with a few questions to just emphasize that question. And here's the first one, which is the one that we've been asking over and over and over again, which is simply, how do you see God? Do you see God as a community of love who acts towards you in love, revealed in Jesus? Do you see God as something else? Well, then would you just stay with this question for a second? How might seeing God 
as a family of love, a community of love revealed in Jesus, begin to reorient your faith? How might it change the way you see yourself? How might it change the way that you see other people? How might it change the way you read the Bible? How might it change the way you see this place? How might it change the way you sing? How might it change the way you love your neighbors? We believe that following Jesus is about following the way of Jesus. And so if we think about Jesus as a way of life, then how might seeing God as a community of love revealed in Jesus change the way of life? And finally, maybe the one that is most helpful for this moment specifically, is what do you need to help you see differently? Maybe you need to see the cross more clearly. It's the moment that most definitively reveals that God's love towards us is what it is. And so maybe today you just need to sit with that image for a bit. Or maybe you need to spend some time asking the Spirit to press deep in us with unveiled faces that we are deeply loved. And maybe as we are led in worship, that's the ask of this moment, is would you reveal deep in me? Would you confirm deep in me? Would you shout out, Abba, so that I would know more and more what it means to be loved? Now, somewhere near you, maybe when you came in, you should have these little communion elements. These little elements are gestures and practices that actually help us take these questions, take this reality, and drive it home. These little elements tell the story of the table where the whole of God is working to provide a space for us to belong. The table is the declaration of God's love revealed in the cross. The table set, the invitation received, is the work of the Spirit in our lives. And so as you Gather in this weird moment, little plastic cups. Would you bring these questions? And more importantly, would you come with the truth that the whole of God is working so that the whole of you may know that you are wholly loved? Let's pray. Spirit of Jesus, would you in this moment, as we take this cup and this bread and as we sing these songs and as we leave this place, would you confirm deep in us that we are wholly loved? Would you show us the deepest revelation of you, the truest revelation of you, the truest revelation of you is of a community of love revealed on the cross? Would you take every other image, every false story of self and of you and of others, and would you help us get those underneath this prime image of you displayed on the cross? God, show us today in our hearts, in our minds, and in our bodies that you wholly love us. And that's your truest identity, and it's ours.
your name we pray.